This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at joeljohnson at parkviewfinley.org. Have you noticed how relationships change over time? How feelings can sometimes fade? How we move from, let's say, the, the honeymoon stage into a, a different kind of relationship that, that deepens and matures over time, but at some point requires a decision, a decision of our own investment, a decision of our own commitment and faithfulness. Think about, think about starting a new job. When you begin that first week, it, it, many people call that your honeymoon phase. You're getting to know new people. Everything's exciting and fun. Those people want to get to know you and you're finding out about all of them. The tasks that you're learning are different and fulfilling and exciting. And then weeks and months pass. And you move through that, that change. And the, the people that you met and were really interested to get to know, you know them now. They know you, and, and you, you're part of the environment at work. Hey, good morning. The tasks that you were learning that were new and fun are now part of your routine. Their expectations, and your, your, all of that excitement is framed within the expectations of your boss and, and the things that you have to accomplish. And you have to just move through the monotony of all those things. And you look back on what thing, the way things were and realize the way things are now. And there's a decision to make. In relationships, when you start dating someone, do you remember what it was like those first days you were dating? You look at your spouse right now and think back maybe a couple of years to those dating days and you think, oh, you remember the infatuation? Just thinking about the love of your life that you were meeting and, and wanting to spend hours talking, learning about them and listening to every word that they had to say to you, just hanging on those. And things change. All of the, all of the fun things you did together, the excitement that you had in dating and all the, the joy and then, and then weeks and months pass and you move through maybe a milestone of commitment like marriage and you get on the other side of that and you realize all those exciting things were just the routine of another person's life and now they're your routine. Huh. And the, the, the joy of that, getting to know that person, now you know them and you know what they look like with bedhead and morning breath. Huh. And you have discussions that become arguments that are like, hey, what are we going to do tonight? I don't, I don't know. Just sit on the couch and watch TV again. Okay. You want to go out to eat? Okay. Where do you want to go? Oh, I, any, anything's fine with me. Okay. How about this place? No, not there. Okay. How about this place? No, I'm not in the mood for that. Well, why don't you tell me what you want? Or I can guess all night and be wrong again and again and again. We have this point of decision to make in the course of those things happening where we realize feelings fade and we have to make a decision about personal investment to remain faithful and committed. That love is not just a feeling, but it is also a decision of the heart each and every moment of every day. Think about your relationship with God. When you first discovered the love of God, when you first experienced 
his forgiveness. Think about the joy and excitement and hope that you had that filled your life. That you would come to worship and feel the tingly sensation of the presence of the Spirit. It was amazing. And you would go out and talk to people about your faith. And you were just full of this, this feeling. And then weeks and months pass and the feeling fades. And you have a decision to make about your investment, your commitment to grow and, and to develop the maturity of that relationship and invest of yourself in, in reading the word of God and spending time in prayer and committing to be a part of his church. And there's more that goes with this relationship than just the feeling. Now, we start a new sermon series this week. We're going to talk about the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Today, we're going to start with the letter to Ephesus. And, and one of the significant messages within that letter is what we're talking about here. You've forsaken that first love. Look how far you've fallen. Go back and do those things that you did at the beginning. Invest yourself and you, you can return to that love that you had. Now, we're, we're going to cover in the course of seven weeks each letter to each one of those churches. And uh, we're going to learn a, a significant amount of information about where these churches were, about the message that came to them from the Lord through John. Now, the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation as he was uh, on the Isle of Patmos, exiled there, and he had this vision from the Lord. And, and he wrote out the things that he saw, prophetic language. We're going to talk about what that means and, and at the beginning of the book of Revelation uh, are, are letters from, from Jesus to the churches about their relationship with him, about the way that they're worshiping together, about how they can be effective. These churches can be found in uh, Asia. Now, this is east of what we're used to talking about in, in the New Testament when we read through the, like the missionary journeys of Paul moving through uh, from the Middle East into some of Europe and Greece. Now, the, these letters are written to churches who just east of there in, into Asia. And it's important to notice that each of these churches are in a very significant place. You can see little green dots where each of the churches are located. They're all on major thoroughfares, all on major roads that the Romans have built within their empire. Two of the, of the churches are in port cities, Ephesus and, and Smyrna. And it's significant to notice how influential these cities were, how potentially influential these churches would be, people coming through. There's a, there's a great impact that they can have. There's also an impact that can be had on the church. And some of the message that the Lord has for the churches is about the, the danger of that impact of people moving through and, and focusing on the significance of the message that goes to those people as they're presented. Now, we read the, the message that, that John recorded from the Lord to these churches. And it's important for us to recognize that, that as we're reading Revelation, we're reading prophecy. And it's a different literary genre. And we have to read it specifically to gain the right kind of information from the words that we're reading. We have to think in terms of history, that the writing includes a lot of reference to the Old Testament, that all the Jewish readers, the original audience would have immediately remembered their upbringing and studying the, the, the Old Testament scriptures, especially the Pentateuch. It would have brought specific imagery to mind about the Lord and their relationship with him. We have to research those things to learn what would have been automatic memory for them. We hear about the historical 
truth that was written to the churches at that time. And we apply the words to those churches to our church today. There's kind of this present reality that we have to interface with uh, of the way that they were interacting with the Lord and interacting with each other, what God was calling them to do as they worshiped him together. And we learn from their example about who we're supposed to be as a church. We also read within these words, future language, things that have not yet come to pass. And we are aware of the significance of the message that was recorded. Now, some of those future words have already come to pass before now. Some of them are still yet to come. And so we, we have to weigh when, when John wrote those words about things coming in the future, is that future, long-term eternity future, is that future that's happened since the New Testament until today. And it's important for us to recognize all of those things. Now, this genre of literature, we know as we read the Bible, we have to adjust as we move through Scripture. If you read from cover to cover, you're going to go from historical narrative through poetry, through some Old Testament prophecy, to the historical narrative of the Gospels, the letters that are written in the New Testament. Uh, and then we come back to prophecy and revelation. There's some other minor uh, differences in between. But, but as we adjust those different kinds of literature, we know that we read them in different ways. The, the historical narrative, we discover what relationships look like and the way the people interact with God. We learn about God himself and the way he relates to people. Poetry provides us with this picturesque language, symbolism that we learn from, not, not always symbolic, sometimes literal, but it provides us different perspectives, different, different ways that we view God in our relationship with him. When we look at prophecy, we understand those prophetic words in a variety of ways. First, we understand the foretelling of the message that God provides through the prophet to his people. The foretelling of things that have not yet come to pass. Prophecy also contains forthtelling, a specific message through the prophet to people that is what God wants them to hear. Usually it contains this, repent, turn from the things that you're doing and do what God wants you to do. Specifically, God says that a lot in prophecy through his prophets to a group of people. The other thing that we read in prophecy is the mystery that's woven through scripture. This mystery that has to be unpacked. It's a puzzle that needs to be solved. It is figurative, symbolic, and also complicated. And Jesus in the, in the gospels spoke in parables and the disciples who were gathered around him as he, as he spoke in these, these stories that were sometimes symbolic would say to him, Jesus, we don't know what you're talking about. Can you explain to us the meaning of the story? And sometimes he would say, yes, here's the meaning. I said this and it means this. There are other times when he would say, now, lots of people heard me tell this story. Some of you will understand what I said. Most of the people who heard me aren't going to get it. They're going to be left wondering what that story meant. And that was okay with him. And as we read prophecy, we need to be okay with that too. We need to learn what we can. We need to unpack the puzzle, but we also need to be ready for a mystery that hasn't yet been solved. And I love the idea of mystery in scripture because it means that we can't just read the Bible and walk away. I finished the book. I'm done. The mystery of scripture calls us back. It calls us to ponder the words of the Lord, to, to roll them over in our hearts and minds, to continue wondering, how does this apply to my life? How does this help me grow? How can I understand more about what he said? And it's engaging. And it meets that, that drive in each of us to solve a puzzle, 
to unpack truth, to get to the bottom of a mystery so that we engage in scripture in a different way. And so we're going to do that as we talk. We're going to talk about the things that we know to be true, that we can that we can conclude logically. And we're also going to talk about some things that we don't fully know the answer to. And, and we're going to enjoy that mystery together. Now, the, the letter today to the church at Ephesus begins in Revelation chapter 2, beginning verse 1. I invite you to open up your Bibles with me as we begin our study uh, of the seven churches. Really excited about this. We had a, a conference last week, a prophecy conference with Tim Moore from Lamb and Lion Ministries to kind of kick off the series in Revelation. Very excited to move through. If you have a Bible, open it up. The words will be on the screen behind me. Also in the Version app, if you want to open a phone or tablet and... Uh, Open up the app and search under events for Parkview Finley. You can find scripture and sermon notes there in the YouVersion app as well. Uh, let's begin reading together in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven, the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not. And you've found them to be false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name. And you've not grown weary, yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, the beginning of this letter provides to us this image of Jesus, this majestic, powerful image of Jesus. And it's a reference to chapter one of the book of Revelation, which we're going to talk about later in the series, but the letter to Ephesus is, is long, so I want to make sure we have plenty of time to cover it. I basically want to point you to the conclusion of chapter one in, in which Jesus provides an answer to some of the mystery. He says, when I talk about seven stars that I hold in my right hand, those seven stars represent angels, Angels that are attributed one to each of the seven churches. And think about what that imagery looks like of Jesus holding in his hand these seven stars, the authority, the power, the control, the oversight, and, and care of what it means to hold them in the palm of his hand. Have you ever caught a lightning bug and just held it in your hand? Can you imagine catching seven of those? How hard that would be, just, just holding on. This, Jesus is holding seven stars in his hand. And we, we see the imagery of what that looks like, of those seven angels as he guides and cares for and, and leads those angels who then in turn lead the church. There's a connection in, in, in the way that Christ is, is holding all of those things in his hand. second thing it says is that he's walking among seven golden lampstands. And those lampstands in chapter one represent each one of the churches. A stand on which a lamp is to be set. And very clearly says that's what these lampstands represent. Now, now here's another image for us to, to mentally picture of Jesus in all his glory walking among these lampstands in the light that they cast. His presence is there among them. 
Think of the confidence that gives us, knowing that he is there, knowing that he is among those churches. And as we, as a church, are gathered together, we know that he is with us. Where, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am. We, we know he's with us, that he, his presence gives us confidence. His power gives us confidence. This idea of having, having those stars in his hand, those angels ready, it reminds us of, of the, the care that he provides to us, the guidance that he brings. And not only that, but the knowledge that he has. What did he say to, to the, in the letter to Ephesus? I walk among your lampstands and I know your deeds. I see your deeds. He's there to see what's happening and he's aware of, of everything that's going on. We have, we have confidence in Christ, knowing his presence, knowing his knowledge of our lives, knowing that his power is available to us, that he is in control, that his authority is present. He gives us confidence to let go of our will and our way, to stop struggling and striving to get what we want and to trust that his way is best, not only for us, but for, for our church, to surrender to his will and to his way and to trust his guidance and his power and his provision for us as a body of believers. There's, there's incredible confidence in that, knowing that he knows our deeds and he knows our hearts and he knows our minds and he sees what's happening here. It it gives us confidence, especially when we start to feel alone, when we start to feel insignificant, when when we work hard and we feel unappreciated. To know that God is there, that Jesus sees our deeds and he knows us. In in the New Testament, we read other, other passages about the knowledge of God over our lives. Jesus said in the book of Luke chapter 12, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Don't be afraid. You're more worth more than many sparrows. God, God knows us so well. He has, I don't know how he numbers them. Some of us, there's less to count than others, but he's, he's got them all numbered. All the hairs on your head. So as they move, as they move down and, and you know, their ear hair and, and back hair, the, the hairs on your head are numbered. So don't worry. He's, he's keeping track of, of where they were at one point. But he knows us so well. Every, every detail of our lives he sees and he knows. Not only those things that we do, he knows our thoughts. He knows our motivation. He knows, he knows our hearts. Writer of Psalm 44 said this, if, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it since he knows the secrets of our heart? There's nothing that we have hidden from God. Every bit of who we are is laid bare before him. He knows us. And that gives us such confidence to stand before him, to trust him because of his knowledge of who we are, that Jesus is God almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present for eternity we can trust him, his power, his provision, and his presence. Now, here's what he said to the church in Ephesus. I see your deeds. And what did he see in them? I see that you're working hard, that, that you are diligently laboring for the kingdom. That's a, that's, a, that's a huge commendation of the church. I see how you are working for my sake. And you're persevering through hardship. When difficult times come, you push through them. You don't quit. You don't stop. You don't give up. You persevere. I see that you're using discernment. Now, the, the church, what he said specifically is when, 
when people come among you and they say, I'm an apostle, listen to me. You say, well, hold on. Give us some some proof. Let's validate who you are and where you're coming from before we entertain anything you have to say. And there's there's great value in that. And, and the Lord said of the, of the church at Ephesus, you work hard, you persevere, and you're, you're, you're using discernment, being very careful about who you listen to. And that's important for a church. And the last thing he said is you've got endurance. In all the things that you've faced, you haven't grown weary. What, what a huge commendation of the labors of a church. And we, we see the example of the church at Ephesus and we learn from them that the truth of God's word is worthy of our labor. That the truth of God's word is, is worth everything that we have to give toward that. The investment of our time and energy and emotion and, and physical effort that all of who we are, it's worth that expenditure to uphold the truth of the word of God, to grow together in our understanding of it, to, to share that truth in the world around us that it's worthy of our labor. And, and it's also worthy for us as a body of believers and as the leadership of a body of believers to very carefully use discernment in how we allow truth to be spoken about. And, and I want you to know that the leadership here at Parkview is very careful about who speaks to us as a church. When we have a guest speaker come, we evaluate who they are and where they're coming from, their background and the message they're going to teach. When we hire staff, we are very careful not perfect, but careful about who we hire. We, we question them. We interrogate them. We find out about their personality and their history and where they've been serving and how they're going to serve the Lord here. All of our classes and our connect groups and our leaders, we, we require of them to be members of the church so that we can have an understanding of who they are and they understand who we are and, and we can talk to them specifically about the kinds of things that are going to be taught and how those things are going to be taught if by chance something comes up in a class that deviates from the word of God, that is a, an application that, that isn't quite correct. Our leaders have a conversation with that teacher and we talk about what was said and, and the, the thing that probably could have been said better and we follow up with that class to, to say, hey, why don't we talk again about this topic and, and let us talk a little bit more about the truth that, that we all need to understand here. We're very careful about that, following this pattern of discernment to hold high the truth of God's word. And it's worthy of that labor. It's worried of those, worthy of those confrontations. It's worthy of that awkward time where we have to move through and correct some wrongs. But it's, it's a valuable expenditure. And no matter how hard we work, it's worth persevering for. The truth of God's word is worth the expenditure and the follow through to persevere and endure. And that's an important message for us as a church today in the midst of the world that we live in. Having gone through the last three years with the rest of the world, we've come to a place where everyone is weary. The workforce is weary. Families are weary. Churches are weary. And what are we called to do? To persevere and endure, to not give up, to not lay down, but to stand with the strength that comes from outside of us, with a strength that is provided to us by the Lord. 
Now think about what happens when you, when you exert yourself, when you've got a hard day of working in the yard and you go for you know, four hours working in the sun, you get exhausted, don't you? What's the first thing you do? You come in, you sit down, you get some lemonade and probably fall asleep. You take a little bit of a nap to rest, to recharge. You eat some food to refuel your body and then you have more strength. You're ready to go and do more yard work, maybe tomorrow, but you do it at some point. When we exert ourselves spiritually, mentally, emotionally, there is an expenditure on those resources that we have to take into account. It's harder to measure because we can't see that effort being poured out the same way that we can measure physical labor. And so after working, after serving, after teaching, after preaching, after caring for people, when we do the work of the Lord, we have this expense that's been paid, this investment of our mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical energy. And just like we would take a nap and eat some food, we need to be rested and restored after we've had that expenditure. And what, what we have is a promise that when we trust the power of God, the provision of God, he supplies everything that we need not only for the task here at hand, but for those things that are coming. That when we depend on him, we don't have to worry about whether we have enough because he will supply more than what we need to do the job that needs to be done. And we can be commended like this church for enduring, for persevering through difficulty and hardship. The, the temptation that we face is after going through something difficult like we have over the course of the last three years, our church is very different than it was three years ago. You look back to 2020, we're a very different place. We've been through hard things together. And we come to the end of that. And the, and the temptation is to say, wow, what a hard time. Let's, let's, let's rest a bit. Let's step back and, and maybe, maybe take a break. No. What we need to do is to persevere, to endure, to be filled with power with the, the energy, with the excitement, with, with, with the provision of God so that we can continue to hold high the, the truth of his word so that, what did he say to the Ephesians? We can return to the things that we did at first. So we can return to the excitement and the joy and the love and the feeling that filled us so that we can be the church he's calling us to be and continue being that church no matter what we face, no matter what we face now, no, no matter what's coming for us in the future, that we would stand in his power, stand in his presence and continue in his love, holding high the truth of his word. And it's an exciting thing to think about where he's calling us when we faithfully follow after him. It's the 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 love that he provides to us that sustains the truth of his word in our lives and sustains the truth of his word as we present it to the world around us. It validates the message. It authenticates the message when we live genuinely in his love. And so as believers, he calls us to live in his love because we're marked by his love. It's what, what makes us known as belonging to Christ. In fact, what Jesus said in the book of uh, John chapter 13 is this, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We're, we're marked by that love. It becomes the thing that people look at and say, oh, 
you must be a Christian. You're doing things that are exceptionally kind. You're not, you're not as, as malicious, as, as derogatory, as negative as the people around you. This love that fills you must come from somewhere else because you're not acting like everybody else. And when we live in his love, it's recognizable to people. And when we talk about the truth of God's word, we have to be able to count on our behavior validating that truth. If we haven't been living in his love and yet we say, oh, I'm a Christian, you should come to my church. What do people think about that? Why on earth would I want to go to your church? Why would I want to go to a place that has made no difference in your life? But if we're living in his love, if our lives are significantly changed and we say, hey, I, I believe in Jesus. I, I see that, that you, you would, I, I just want to introduce you to the Lord. I want you to come to my church. I want you to experience what I've experienced. And they look at our lives and say, wow, I see how, how different you are. I see what kind of change has been made possible because of what God has done. I want to discover that for myself. That's, that's how the truth is validated by our love. It's inspiring. It's inviting. It's encouraging. And that's for each of us individually. When we come together as a church and the love of the Lord fills us, it does even more for the message of truth. It, it fills us and helps us grow. It helps us grow toward maturity. It, it amplifies the message of the truth of Jesus in the world around us. When people hear about the things going on, when they hear about the connections that we have that are deeper than surface level, when they hear about the lives that we live connected to one another, they say, I'm missing that in my life right now. I feel disconnected from everybody. I feel empty from the work that I do. I, I connect with family and those, those relationships that I once depended on, they don't feel as close as they once did. I'm missing that. And I see that you have it. I want to know how. It's love. That that fills us and encourages those around us. It's love that inspires people and becomes the culture of our church, the spirit of our church, the defining factor of who we are together, that we would be an expression genuinely, authentically of his love. Now, when we think about who we are as a church, one of the first things that people say about us is that we're a very welcoming place, very friendly. People feel at home when they visit. This is what I've heard. I'm here every week. I don't visit often. So when I talk to people who are coming for the first time, one of the things they say is, you know, we've been other places. We, we went in for church and uh, it was hard to start conversations with people. They didn't feel very welcome. We came here and, and people stopped what they were doing to come and say hi, to ask about who we, we just really feel at home. That's, that's what I hear about who we are as a church. That's, that's what people experience from us, and I want to thank you for your work in, in making that our identity of, of being a welcoming place. And I want to encourage you to continue doing that. When you see people who are new, welcome them. Make them feel like this is the couch in your living room. Like keep your shoes on and like be normal and stuff. But but make them feel like they can sit down and get a cup of coffee and and enjoy the fellowship because we belong together and we want to get to know one another and live life next to each other. The other thing that love does for us as a church is that it builds us up together as we, as we encourage one another and care for one another. And, and prayer is a huge part of that care that we provide as we support one another in love. But that care goes, goes much further beyond that. As, as we get more connected, we discover the depths of those relationships. As we join connect groups and we, we're part of a small group Bible study that, that 
isn't just about study, but it's more about relationships and prayer and, and food and care as we watch out for, the, for each other's kids and we, we, we recognize when there's uh, an illness or surgery and provide for that family and, and we take care of needs. And as a church, we demonstrate this deeper love for one another. It's a growth that comes when, when we serve alongside one another where we, we, we work together and learn more about each other. And we go out in the community and we care for other people and we labor together for the good of others. And we, we grow with this depth and maturity and understanding that comes. It comes because of the love of God that fills us. It comes because of the mutual commitment we have to the truth of his word. Now, the, the words that Jesus gave to John to write down in, in Revelation to the church at Ephesus, I find to be intriguing because they mirror the words that Paul wrote to the church in the book of Ephesians, especially in chapter 4. If you read along with me, here's what Paul said to the believers there as he was talking about what it means to grow in maturity. He said this, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Paul wrote to the church early on in the New Testament about how important it was to, to couple truth and love together to support the truth about Jesus with a loving expression. That when we love people, we would also tell them why we love them. That these two things go hand in hand and are inseparable. And when Jesus gave John this message in the book of Revelation, the same message is true. You, you're working diligently, you're laboring and striving, and you're, you're testing people, and you, you will not tolerate wickedness among you. You uphold the truth, but... Don't forget about love. Don't forget about what you did at first. Don't forget about this love that filled you as a church, that defined you. Go back and do those things again. Go back and be that love in the world around you as you uphold the truth of God's word. And it's incredible for me to see this pattern repeated through history. And it provides to us an incredible example of the importance of these two things, hand in hand, truth and love. And it's a warning to us also of the temptation that we fall into when we labor for the truth, when we work and teach and study, when we have difficult conversations with people and we stand on, on morality that's taught to us from Scripture and, and we fight those battles, it's easy to grow weary, especially when we forsake the love that we had at first. When we get so focused on winning those arguments that we forget to love the people that we're talking to. It's, it's, it's wearisome. It, it wears us out. And we have to be careful not to fall into that pattern, but instead to, to live lives of love. Always, continually, perpetually, authenticating the, the things that we say with the loving kindness that pours through us from God. As Jesus concluded his letter that he gave to John, 
to pass on to the church at Ephesus, there are a few things at the end of the letter that, that, that really are kind of disjointed, but they're important nonetheless. He said, return to your first love. Go back and do those things. When you feel like that feeling isn't there, don't trust your feelings. Don't change the way you're behaving because the feeling isn't there. Return to those things. Do those things you did at first and let those feelings come back. Same kind of thing that I say when I talk to young couples who are going to get married. I, when, when, every time I, I officiate a wedding, I talk to the couples who are going to get married about, about life and we go through this process of discussion. And I, and I say the same kinds of things to those couples. The first is this. Your relationship is going to change after you're married. It, it does for everybody. The excitement that you once had will become routine. One of the things that you need to do is continue dating after you get married. <laughs> Keep dating the person that you're married to. Date your spouse continually. Don't get into this mindset that because we're married, we live together, we no longer need to go out and do fun things. You need to continue doing the things you did at first so that those feelings will remain. If you give up on those things, if, you're, if you forsake those things that you did at first, that first love, you will find yourself committed but lacking the feeling that needs to be present, that love is both a feeling and a commitment of faithfulness that has to be made every moment of every day. I say to them, you have to remain true to both of those aspects because if you let your feelings dictate your actions, I can guarantee you that at some point in your marriage, you're going to realize maybe for just a moment, maybe for a couple of days at a time, you're married to somebody that you don't like very much. You're, you're, you're going you're gonna to find a day when your spouse is sick, when they're tired, when they're irritable, and they say or do something that's going to be really hurtful. And you're going to really not like it. That doesn't give you the excuse to no longer be faithful to them. That doesn't give you the excuse to not be committed. You can't let your feelings dictate your actions. You have to choose to do the things that you did at first so that those feelings will be restored. And when you get to that place where you don't really like that person, you need to remember the love that you have for them. To remember the commitment that you have made and be true to the feeling of love and the commitment of your heart that are together every moment of every day. And we think about how that applies to our relationship with the Lord. And when we have gotten to a place in our lives where that decision has to be made, where the feeling that was present at first is no longer driving us, and we have to decide to invest in our relationship with the Lord, to invest in the relationship that we have with people at church so that we can return to the love that we had at first. When... We've been attending church for a while. We, we really enjoyed the experience of coming to visit. And now we've been attending for weeks and months, maybe years. And we're not feeling the same thing that we did. We're not feeling connected. We're not feeling like we're growing. Maybe we need to make a decision about the investment that we're making to the Lord and to the people here. Maybe we need to think about joining a group so that we can get to know people on a more intimate level. Maybe we need to find a way to serve and get plugged in so that we're investing in. Our, our faith in the Lord. We're investing in the relationship we have with him and the relationship we have with other people. And, and through those investments, we'll, we'll return to that place. We'll return to that love that we had. As a church together, we think about what it means for us to live in that love, to continually return to those things that we did at first, to that joy and excitement that we have. 
to continually be there so that our lives will sustain the truth of God's word in the world around us. He said, continue to do the things you did at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Look, Look at the place where you are now. These things I hold against you. What I don't hold against you, Jesus said, is that you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Now, there's no real specific way for us to know exactly who led this uprising, this, this vein of teaching in the church. What we do know it was detrimental to the church, that, that the Nicolaitans were turning the hearts of Christians away from the Lord with, with false teaching. And so the, the message is true. Continue to hate that practice, that, that deceiving teaching that pulls people away from the Lord. You hate that practice, and so do I, says Jesus. Now, that's, that's something we don't normally associate with Jesus. Usually, we think of Jesus as love. God is love. Jesus is the expression of God's love toward us. Rarely do we ever use the word hate in the same sentence with Jesus, but here he says, you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. I do too. He doesn't say we both hate the Nicolaitans. He says we both hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. It's important for us to separate that thought, and to understand that we can hate the practices, hate the deeds, hate the behavior, and still love and care for a person. And, and the, the dynamic of this emotion from Jesus is rooted in his love for the church. And, and one of the commentators I read said that, that this hate comes from the fact that Jesus loves the church so much that he hates the deeds that would pull the believers away from him. When we love someone so much, we hate the things that threaten them. And Jesus, recognizing the threat to his church, hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, he gave a, a warning and reward, as he will in the close of each of the letters that we need to pay attention to. Here's what he said to the Ephesians. If you don't repent, <laughs> I will remove your lampstand. Okay, what does that mean? Well, when we come across things that are, are difficult to understand, we have to think of the context of Scripture. We have to look at the way it's used, where it's written. And so we look at the context of lampstand in the book of Revelation. And, and we understand that the context, from the context, that lampstand means the church. If you're not faithful, if you don't repent, well, the, the first obvious definition is I will remove the church. When we look into the New Testament at large, there's one other place that Jesus uses the word lampstand. It's in the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Here's what he says. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So when Jesus says, if you're not faithful, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Another definition of what that may mean is that he's going to remove the influence of the church. He's going to, to remove that, that lampstand of the church that's holding up the light of the gospel that's spread through our lives. That, that position that provides light to the room around it, to the world around it, if he says, I'm going to remove your lampstand, we as believers no longer have that supportive influence of effectiveness, of visibility. You think about the, where the, the early churches in the book of Revelation were located on those major roads and port cities, the, the place of influence that they held. There's significance here in what Jesus is warning them against. They have such opportunity to make an impact in the world around him, them with the truth of his love, and I will be removed if they're not faithful. The second thing he says is this, if 
you're victorious. You can eat from the tree of life that's found in paradise. Now, the word victorious or those, the, the victors is going to be repeated in the book of Revelation. And it refers to those who are faithful. Those who are faithful through difficulty. Those who are faithful in times of difficulty and persecution. Those who remain faithful to his word. Who, who choose to repent. Who choose to respond to his message. Those who are faithful will then receive a reward. And here Jesus talks about eternity. About the fullness of life that comes that has been promised to believers, this idea of life and paradise and heaven. And it's a challenge to each of us to weigh the cost of our faithfulness and choose to do those things, to repent of where we are and to return to the love that we have for the Lord as we hold up his truth in our lives and in the world around us. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for the message that you bring to us through your word. Thank you for this letter to Ephesus that, that now means so much to us as believers as well as we learn from their example and we learn from your words. I pray that you would inspire us to live authentic lives, supporting the truth of your word with the love that we express. God, I pray that you would encourage us, that you would meet us in the face of difficulty and supply everything that we need to stand and to be an example for you and the world around us. God, I thank you in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.